0: This is channel 253.
1: In this episode of Crossing Division.
0: Recognize that you're building
2: the plane as you're taking off and be willing to listen authentically to families and to students and to staff and build something together. Wise person once told me people support and sustain what they help create. And I think one of the things that has been really a struggle is everybody felt like this, that what happened last spring was put upon them.
1: Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com.
0: Hi, welcome to this episode of Crossing Division. This is Evelyn Lopez. Today we're going to talk a little bit more about schools and education which we started talking about last week, Um, but now I want to get down into kind of the nitty-gritty of what is required under the law and does it look like we're going to come anything close to fulfilling our obligations under the law as we inch back into the classroom this fall. And so for that I've asked to talk with my friend Shannon McMinemy who is I think one of the foremost knowledgeable people about the law and education in our state. So, Shannon, why don't you introduce yourself?
2: Thank you, Evelyn. That's very flattering. Uh, I am an attorney who specializes in education and civil rights law. I've been doing this work for uh, about 18 years now. I spent the first chunk of my career representing school districts. I was a general counsel of a large school district. I was an assistant superintendent of human resources for a large school district. I worked at a law firm that represented school districts. And in the last few years, I have transitioned to representing students, families, and employees in cases involving school districts. I also uh, teach constitutional law at the University of Washington Tacoma. And starting this fall, I'm going to be teaching in the Master's of Jurisprudence program at the University of Washington School of Law. So I'd like to think of myself as an education nerd. And I spend most of my day deeply embroiled in, in topics related to education And I will tell you, in the last six months, there have been many times that I've thought to myself, wow, I'm really glad I'm not a school district risk manager anymore. Um, Wow, I'm really glad I'm not a school district general counsel anymore. And oh, wow, am I glad I'm not an assistant superintendent of HR anymore. It's definitely been a very trying time for school districts as they navigate a new world. And it's also been an incredibly trying time for students, families, and employees as they've tried to figure out how this education system is going to work, how students with significant needs are going to have those needs met, how employees who have health limitations themselves are going to be allowed to continue to work in a way that's safe for them. So it's pretty much been my life uh, since March 3rd was the first time a COVID issue came across my desk, and it's pretty much been the focus of my work
0: since then. I think that's actually a really important caveat here, and that and that is this, and that is that we understand I am absolutely um, sympathetic and kind of, you know, filled with um, horror and also filled with gratitude that it's not something that I have to fix, but for everyone, I mean, for the school districts trying to figure out how to do this and meet their obligations for the teachers who are sort of looking at, you know, what is my responsibility and how do I do this to the parents who are thinking, you know, what are they gonna do to the students trying to uh, manage, I mean, I don't think there's anyone in this in this arena who's feeling at all confident. Um, and I think we can accept that, thats sort of like, yeah, this is a work in progress, We are seeing challenges that are extremely out of the ordinary. Um, With any luck this time around, we might learn things that we can then use for the future. But but even within that construct, there are certain things that we expect the schools to do and that they're required to do by law. So tell us a little bit about Washington State. Why education keeps, why when we talk about schools and education, do we keep coming back to a constitutional issue?
2: Sure. In Washington state, there is a constitutional right to a public education. And it has uh, been litigated many, many times about the obligation of the state to fully fund that, most recently with the McCleary cases. But it puts us in a unique situation, because your right to attend public education isn't something that's guaranteed to you by the federal government or the federal constitution. Federal laws uh, dictate that there is an obligation to serve certain subgroups of students, but your right to a basic education is really grounded in state law. And here in Washington, it's a constitutional duty, and it's actually identified as a paramount constitutional duty. And, and it it is so bizarre to me that we take have a a series of cases every 20 or 30 years to remember what the word paramount means, and mm-hmm. that, that it is, in fact, uh, the most significant duty the state has is to amply fund, not just fund, but amply fund basic publica- public education for its K-12 students. And of course, Washington has truancy laws, so students are mandated to participate in educational programs uh, when they get across the threshold for that law unless they're being homeschooled uh, or they can provide proof of participation in a private program. And so we're in a state where you're both promised uh, basic education under the Washington state constitution and where if you don't access education, you and your parent could find yourself subject uh, to uh, punitive action, including incarceration. And so in Washington, we are in a position where our students have a constitutional right to access a basic education. And of course, what is always disputed is what is basic education? What does that mean? What does it, say it encompass? Uh, what's included in that? What's not included in that? And then Washington has specific laws and regulations that they've passed over the years about what they see uh, as the big picture for what a basic education is supposed to look like. So that it can be uniform across the over 200 school districts that are in Washington that, uh, and that has always traditionally been 180 days of educational offerings. Where over the course of those 180 days, there's a set number of instructional hours offered over that uh, that 180 days. And if you're going to deviate that from that, you have to obtain a waiver from the state of Washington in order to do that. And now we're in a we're in a reality where many school districts you know we're not able to meet those obligations last spring and some of those obligations were waived last spring but there are also federal obligations that were never waived and how as the coming school year starts do you juggle competing information competing directives from the governor from health agencies with these legal obligations under both federal and state law to serve students and How do you do that when some of your streams of resources are tied up with particular funding models that don't work in this current situation? So that's where a big conundrum is. I'll Mm -hmm. give transportation as as the obvious example. In Washington state, transportation is not included in the basic education uh, definition, but there is funding available to school districts who offer transportation. But that funding is based on per pupil ridership. So now school districts are finding themselves in the position of having to lay off bus drivers, even if they've had the bus drivers doing things like delivering meals, uh, driving mobile hotspots, delivering work packets to students because bringing education to students does not equal state funding. State funding requires picking up students and bringing them to school. So there've been a number of superintendents who've, who've approached the state about how can they address that, how can they, if they're going to be in a position where public health officials are telling them, return to school for most students is not possible, how do they continue to employ bus drivers and use those bus drivers to meet student needs if the per-pupil ridership model is a model that's going to be used.
0: Mm-hmm. Is that something that, can someone waive that to say, you know, for, this, for the 2020-2021 school year, uh, the transportation dollars that were provided in the previous year will be provided regardless of ridership? Can, in, they, can someone do that?
2: In theory, yes. And I know a number of superintendents have approached the state about that. Uh, another conundrum is um, meals and the provision of meals. The USDA uh, school lunch program and breakfast program traditionally come with pretty significant requirements associated with matching a meal to a student and establishing that a student has is eligible for that meal or is in a school or school district that has participated in the community eligibility program where, for example, there's just so many students of poverty in a particular school or community, where rather than having individual families fill out applications, the entire school community receives free food. Uh, And last spring, the USDA waived some of those stringent requirements so that, for example, students did not have to come with their parents to pick up meals. Mm -hmm. Uh, because that obviously creates an exposure risk. It obviously makes things challenging for students, uh, for families who have more students than they have cars or who have students with disabilities where disrupting them by taking them to school but not allowing them to go to school would have been really hard. Um, So they waived some of those obligations. And then the summer meal program started. And the USDA summer meal program is applicable to anyone under the age of 18. So it doesn't have to be an enrolled student. And that allowed for school districts to more freely distribute food. And several local superintendents have really been asking for the USDA to consider allowing the summer meal program to run for the duration of the time period where schools are closed for COVID uh, for a number of reasons. One, you know, it's, it's hard to say if there are new people to the district who haven't filled out the paperwork for free and reduced lunch eligibility because school's not in session and they can't have their normal process of explaining what it is and providing access to computers to fill those out to, you know, parents may not, parents may choose to participate in online programs through other school districts. And once they do that, well, then their child is now no longer on the rolls of their local school district and is ineligible for food services from that school district. And if you're participating in Washington Virtual Academy and you live in Seattle or Tacoma, you're not going to OMAC to get your free lunch. It's just not right. going to happen. And so um, I think that that's, a, that's an area where it, it makes a lot of sense for school districts to push for waivers because it's, it's really challenging in these circumstances to try and put families in the position between deciding how to get those meals and being able to use the existing framework of the summer food program to provide meals to students. Also, on the flip side, when you think about what can benefit the economy, having a more uh, robust food access program to students through the USDA means greater support of those who those farmers and companies that participate in the USDA food programs mm-hmm. and you yeah, know that that has a benefit too uh, given that our food supply chain is very different now than it was 3 or 6 months ago to be mm-hmm. able to have more opportunities for vendors and farmers who Don't have the restaurants that they're normally selling to and don't have the normal avenues of sales. I I think the USDA summer program and continuing that through the school year is a win win situation. So I really, um, I commend Susan Enfield from the Highline School District has been a big advocate of that as well as Denise Juneau in Seattle, and I really commend them for speaking up on that issue. Uh, Creston Barr, a former Tacoma School District administrator who's now the superintendent up in Eatonville has been pushing on that issue. So those are areas where I think it makes sense to pursue waivers and different rules under the circumstances, food, transportation dollars, and allowing school districts to be able to take food and work and Wi-Fi to students. I'm from rural eastern Washington originally. A lot of my clients who are in eastern Washington, I picked up the food and the work packets for them and delivered it because they just weren't in a position to do that. And I, you know, my clients are like the tiniest subset of the families out there. And so I think that that's another way, you know, allowing for school districts to have bus drivers you know, deliver food, deliver materials, deliver Wi-Fi hotspots, deliver staff, right? So if there, if there's a student who needs um, speech-language pathology services, have the bus driver take the speech-language pathologist out to the school, out to the home, versus having the child come into the school where there's a potential greater risk. So I think that, that those are two areas that really stand out to me in ways that it makes sense to bend the rules or change the rules or suspend the rules, as opposed to some of the other areas where there's been a real question mark of, oh, what do we have to do? We won't do anything, and if we don't do anything, we don't get in trouble, which obviously is not
0: the answer. Right, well, let's talk about them, that. I mean, that's a good point. So there are some waivers that we can see, is, I would call them especially structural waivers, where it sort of allow the school district to use resources in a way that may not traditionally be used so that they can provide the best services to students that's probably a, a positive waiver should definitely be supported. So let's look at the other type of waiver that we're hearing about. Um, last week, when I talked to Adrienne Stewart, one of the things she was concerned about, and she's part of the group of parents that have filed a lawsuit over this, is the State Board of Education um, doing a, a, an emergency rule. So by rulemaking, changing the definition of what is a basic education. So what are your thoughts on that? Oh, uh this I this is one it's kind of like a waiver
2: it is um i i i'm a little wary of using the court system to address that because if we've learned anything it's that courts are not going to delve into the intricacies of rule making in emergency situations and i think that time period between when the first charter law was found unconstitutional and when the second law passed and how OSPI and the State Board of Education went through hoops to allow those charter schools to continue to run, and court and the court chose not to address that. I'm a little worried about courts being the avenue to address that. That yeah. being said, I agree that the change in the uh, requirements associated with how many days and how many hours students receive education is concerning. And part of that is we've traditionally maintained a seat time model in Washington state. And if you're going to deviate for that from that, it needs to be for thoughtful reasons and have a basis for it. And mm-hmm. not all instruction in Washington is tied to that 180-day, 1,000-hour requirement. We have what are called alternative learning experience programs, which are have been around for a long time, and they don't have that requirement of you must be in this seat for 175 hours in order to get this credit, it is a more of a check-in individual education plan, and this is where a lot of those existing online schools have been, is they've been running through this alternative learning experience model. And then there are other schools that use experiential learning and these different things. So there is a way to capture education through models other than seat time, but to just do emergency rulemaking leaves a vacuum. And mm-hmm. I think the important part of that lawsuit really focused on existing federal obligations that the state cannot waive. And I do a lot of work in the area of special education law. And initially when schools shifted to in that first couple of weeks uh, and some school districts, North Shore comes to mind uh, where they immediately pivoted and started doing remote learning. And they were in a position to do that because they'd run a tech levy and had Wi-Fi wifi hotspots available. And I really commend them for making that pivot as quickly as possible. But then there was a question of okay, so how are you providing special education services to students who are eligible under the Federal Individuals with Disabilities Education Act idea uh, I, or the IDEA? I use IDEA to not confuse it with the school in Tacoma. Right, right. <laughs> the high school in Tacoma. So I'm going to use IDEA to explain okay. the federal special education law. And then there was this misstep. Impression that schools got, which is, well, we can't do anything because if we do something, we have to offer all the services called for in students' IEPs. So we're better off not serving any student. And then the federal government is like, whoa, they like our message was completely misunderstood. That was not the intention. Your federal obligations continue. And the IDEA itself has a provision that allows for Congress to waive the obligations that school districts have under the IDEA. And stepping back, the obligations school districts have is for students who are eligible for special education services. School districts are required to provide them a free appropriate public education in the student's least restrictive environment. Special ed laws filled with acronyms, so that's FAPE in an LRE. But the bottom line is school districts are obligated to provide services to special education students to allow them to be able to meaningfully make educational progress based on their own unique needs. And how that plays out is very different based upon individual needs of students. So the IDEA itself does allow for there to be a waiver, but the federal government and and Betsy DeVos and Secretary of Education have been clear that they're not going to seek an IDEA waiver so this left school districts in the position of having this federal obligation to serve students with disabilities and a state mandate that says your buildings are generally closed except for you might be you could use them to provide special education services based upon individual decision making Mm -hmm. and that created a lot of tension uh, in a lot of different ways And, and some of those tensions make sense and some of those seem in my perspective, to be a bit of an artificial barrier. Uh, school districts, I, have, it's, I, I my understanding is school districts insurance companies and school district lawyers immediately viewed this as a liability and human resources issue rather than an education issue, which really concerned me. Um, obviously, yes, you wanna make sure your staff are safe. And obviously you have to work with the unions that represent staff if you're going to be making changes in how they work. So I recognize that. But this whole idea that it was going to be this tremendous liability risk to stu- to school districts to serve students, and therefore no one should get served, was bizarre. And I had some, some scenarios play out that made no sense. For example, student with significant special education needs being served in a clinic. Clinic remains open, school district threatens to stop paying for clinic because if they're providing services to that student, then everybody else is gonna find out and want services too. That's not how it works. Uh, I have many clients who have significant needs who need dedicated service. So um, students with autism who receive support from uh, applied behavior analysis models where they have a dedicated person working with them. Students with health needs who have dedicated nursing staff. All of those students, many of those students, continue to receive home care through the state, and so mm-hmm. it was really befuddling as to how can this be okay for one branch of the state and not the other. Mm-hmm. And while we've never, as a nation, faced anything similar or exactly like COVID, there's been some past experience with it. You know, there was guidance given when the H1N1 flu came out. There. Um, or circumstances after natural disasters where it was clear that no, just because something bad has happened or it's challenging to serve students does not mean you get to stop serving students with special education needs. Or And there are also other groups, um, students who are English language learners, where there's just, it's hard to envision moving to a completely remote technology-based model that's going to work for them and also other districts who moved to paper packets. So it's just I had many clients who the paper packets came home and there was no tie between the paper packets and the students' actual skills. So I think that's an area where there's a lot of uh, real need for individualized thinking, having that team meeting and planning for a specific student's needs, really thinking about how can this student's needs be met in these particular circumstances, rather than trying to force everybody into a specific model of learning. And I really commend school districts that were able to um, come up with creative ways to provide similar educational experiences for students where they continued to get the same benefit as they would have if they had been in person. Um, But I think it's also important that we do better than last spring Last spring, I think a lot of students with disabilities got left behind and left out. And so coming up on the start of the school year, that's where it's really important to be having those individual team meetings, thinking about students as unique learners, and really targeting what services they need versus thinking about everything in the traditional models. If one thing, if, if one thing comes out of this, I would love for it to be to know that we can do different when forced to be in different circumstances, and so that we really do start reenvisioning different ways to deliver instruction to students based on student needs versus traditional models, which are really sh- shaped around the needs of adults. Mm-hmm. And, um, but also, it's important to be realistic about the differences that different students have with respect to access to learning. I have students with significant cognitive and mobility impairments. They're never going to be able to log themselves onto Zoom. And to have the expectation that the parent do that for them, you know, that assumes everybody has a parent who's at home. That assumes everybody has a parent who's at home who's technology literate, who speaks English, who's able to access technology in the same way. So I think it, it's a very challenging circumstance. And I, I, some school districts have handled it much better than others some school districts have really 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 struggled with putting student need at the forefront and that's concerning and i hope that that is the big thing that changes come fall is more of a focus on meeting individual student needs uh having worked in the school district side at one point last spring i think it was maybe end of march i just wanted to call i was like could I call Chris Reichdahl and Glenn Gallo and say, here are six really great administrators, put them in a room together mm-hmm. and they will come up with a plan for special ed students that you can implement statewide because I'm really worried. <laughs> but um, I, that's a big area of concern for me as is, is students with disabilities, um, ELL students, English language learner students, as well as really thinking about how we equitably serve students. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the lack of access to technology and Wi-Fi is a huge issue. To me, it's a civil rights issue.
0: Let's stop there because I want to take a short break, but that's exactly what I want to drill down into is sort of next, you know, we've got our context, but now let's talk about how this actually works for individual students and families. Okay.
1: This is Doug Mackey, producer of the Channel 253 Podcast Network. This episode of Channel 253 is sponsored by Pacific Lutheran University. PLU is expanding its graduate program and creating more and more ways for you to continue your education. A master's from PLU can take your career to the next level, or it might just be the thing you need to pivot to something you've discovered you're passionate about later in life. The master's in kinesiology is a whole new graduate program, adding on to PLU's decades of experience with advanced degrees in nursing, education, fine arts, marketing, and more. Think about PLU as a sort of training ground for what comes next. Earn your spurs here and then ride your new master's degree into the sunset. Best of all, if you live in Tacoma, PLU is just down the street. That means there's no Seattle traffic between you and your degree. To request more information or attend an info session, visit plu.edu graduate. My thanks to PLU for their sponsorship of Channel 253.
0: Okay, we're back. Before we get uh, talking more about schools and education, I want to suggest that for those of you who are not yet Channel 253 subscribers, and Shannon just revealed to me that she is a Channel 253 subscriber, which I think I knew anyway. I am as well. Um... If you are not yet a member, please consider joining us. It is a very good deal. It is $4 a month or $40 a year. And we are creating some content that will be exclusively available to members. So you will know things that nobody else knows. And eventually, we'll get back to some of our in-person activities too, like the adult civics happy hour and other things around Tacoma. And you just don't want to miss out. Plus, the whole point of this really is to support kind of another forum for voices that may you may not always hear. So you're going to always hear local stories about local issues that are interesting to you and interesting to your neighbors. And that is our goal. So please consider subscribing. And with that, Shannon, you just started talking about something that I find quite fascinating. And this is the assumptions that underlie the idea that, okay, you know, this virus is bad. I mean, and no question, let me tell you, I we, I have not seen a friend in person since March. You know, me and my husband, Joe, we hang out here at the house. We, we'll go out maybe once a day to run one errand. One of us will mask up and go into a store. The other one stays in the car, usually with the dogs. I mean, we don't see anyone. So I know this is dangerous and I completely agree the schools are dangerous. I completely understand the conclusion of, it looks like we're not going to be able to have kids back in the classroom in September. But the assumptions that then seem to underlie what we are going to have are kind of mind-blowing for 2020. Um, and you know, some of the assumptions are kids are going to be able to sit in front of a computer from eight in the morning till three in the afternoon. Okay. And that's nobody's learning model. Um, little kids are going to be able to be doing this all day long without, you know, any particular breaks. Um, Families will have the time, the emotional energy, um, the ability to be off work in the middle of the day, and the technology to be able to facilitate this. So what are, I, I don't know even how to ask you, Shannon. I mean, I know, so what are your concerns? What are your thoughts? But you know, what do you see developing out there? All I see is the children who have ready resources will continue to get some kind of an education and the other kids will um, not.
2: I think that's where we're headed. And that's what worries me from a constitutional perspective and that right that students have in Washington State to basic education. We will see, there's this, the, the and I, I really, again, want to commend the superintendents who see that this is not, sustainable model long term or even intermediate term or short term who recognize that not every family is going to be able to do remote learning in the way that they're talking about because remote learning assumes several different things one you have access to the technology necessary to log on school districts are struggling to fill that technology gap And none of them had plans to have in their budget the capability of having both Wi-Fi and devices provided to all students, uh, with the exception of a rare few who had done technology levies that had helped facilitate that. And so one, there's the device issue. Second, and uh, the Wi-Fi and access to Wi-Fi. I think that those of us who live in Tacoma and Seattle yeah, we know that Wi-Fi is available to us, but there are limitations to that. Even the programs that allowed for parents to access reduced cost or free Wi-Fi uh, for children in the spring that came through some of the cable companies, if you had an outstanding bill with one of those companies or you had defaulted on your payment in the past, you weren't eligible to participate in those programs. I have clients who live in rural areas where getting Wi-Fi means getting a dish put onto your house. And it's a, it's a cost for the equipment plus the monthly bill. And there are many school districts, both urban and rural, where students were in the car outside the school accessing the Wi-Fi from the school buildings. And I've talked to a lot of school district superintendents and principals who have taken the Wi-Fi passwords off of their um, Wi-Fi to allow the public to access Wi-Fi, including students, in an easier way. And they're not turning off the Wi-Fi network at the end of the school day. But I think we can all agree that it is not ideal for students to be in the parking lot of their schools learning. Oh. Well, And, and, that, no, and that also
0: assumes you can get to the parking lot. Wow. Well, exactly. exactly. Plus, you know, cause I had been thinking, you know, is there, can you create enough of a, of a web coverage if you have, let's say all public life, I mean, you know, city, county, state offices, all offices take your passwords off, you know, boost to your highest potential businesses voluntarily maybe do that too. I don't know. But even then, you're not going to have coverage for areas that are more remote. I mean, that that will do it in the city, but it's not going to do it outside of a city. And that
2: really gets to is Wi-Fi, uh, you know, at what point does access to Wi-Fi become a civil rights issue? And here Mm -hmm. in Washington, if we are moving to a model of education that requires everybody to have access to Wi-Fi, even if you're working off your mom's cell phone or your dad's grandma's cell phone or your grandfather's cell phone, you still have to have Wi-Fi. And so, to me, that's where there's a big, that's an FCC, federal discussion about how do we make broadband and Wi-Fi available to all kids under the age of 18 in a way that allows them to access it. Now, let's step back a layer. Talking about kindergartners and and small children, Um, I was... Talking with a superintendent friend, I'm like, ooh, kindergartners, they touch everything. They put everything in their mouths and what they don't put in their mouth, the next, you know, they put in their nose and the next kid picks it up. And so, you know, as, as schools go back to this hybrid model and thinking about that, there's a lot of changing the behavior, really little kids. But at the same time, you know, okay, some of those kids may have ac- may have experience using devices and the ability to log on. But there is no child in the world who can sit in front of a computer screen for seven hours a day. It's just not mm-hmm. it's not appropriate. It's not educationally sustainable. But then I think about my clients who have um, language or or disability barriers. They need another person to log on for them. Okay, so mm-hmm. what happens if their parent? also has language or disability barriers for them. They're left with nothing. And then you also think about who in this economy is able to stay home and work remotely. Right? I have lots of friends who are in, in the legal field who have one parent working in a closet and the other parent working in the office mm-hmm. and they're both home but they're doing school for their children and then doing a full work day when the children go to sleep, which mm-hmm. is not sustainable. But that's, those are two-parent households. Usually one, or, one of those people is a lawyer in my world because you now yeah. we have yeah. lawyers locked together. But that's a lot to put on, on, on families. And then you think about families who their survival depends on a parent going outside the home to work. Mm-hmm. And then is it the older sibling who gives up their schooling to make sure the younger siblings are getting online and accessing education or is that family just going to be one of those families that disappears into the ether that you know you hope come back when when school is is transitioning to a more traditional format. And then you also Um, When you're thinking about, you know, who can and who can't access technology, it's really hard to think about how it would be that a child is going to be in a circumstance that has, you know, working parents, are daycares going to step in and support kids doing online learning or are you going to choose to keep your child in daycare and forego education because at least at daycare, they're having interactions and social interactions, and you're able to keep your job because you can go to work? Um, I think that's a really tough balance to put on families because I can't think of very many children in my life, and, and I have a lot of you know little cousins and nieces and nephews and I think my 16-year-old niece is very responsible and she's pretty good at doing her online learning by herself. But Mm -hmm. I can't imagine my nephew being, (laughs) he's going to be starting the sixth grade. I can't imagine that he's capable of independently navigating technology to engage in education. And then I think to my clients whose parents don't speak English or who don't have the dexterity because of mobility limitations to log on to things. And you know, that gets back to the okay, what does this specific child need and how can we serve this child in this in these circumstances? And you know, it's it's hard I, I it's hard to imagine how we're going to come out of this situation without two deeply different groups of children. All children will have been impacted by this, but there are going to be children whose parents band together and hire a teacher. Mm-hmm. There are going to be parents who band together and have their au pairs or child care providers alternate days supervising online learning and then there're going to be children who might log on once or twice there you know i think of so many of the high school kids i know both in seattle and tacoma who are working full time now because their family needs for them to be able to do that and i just don't see them going back to participate in online learning especially in this model that's gonna require attendance versus mm-hmm. doing what they can when they can. And that puts you know, that's a really tricky situation to think about. Um, obviously the state is requiring more in order to prove that school districts are, are providing education. The flip side is, are you really going to pursue truancy action against students who aren't able to access online learning? It's a possibility, obviously we've seen it happen, um, but that really worries me, mm-hmm. and it really sets up a dichotomy for me, where the traditionally marginalized communities only get further behind, and um, the students whose families have resources will continue to be okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> their parents may come out of this very, <laughs> very wigged out and very stressed out, but they'll they'll be okay. Yeah. Um, and that's that's a real, and, you know, I can, like the Seattle School District was talking about doing outdoor education, and I, I think that comes from a really good place, but that assumes that everybody has a safe park that they can walk to to meet their teacher to be educated, and that's just also a very, it's not how school works in the minds of, of, of specific cultures and why would they send their kid to a park to learn that doesn't make sense and so um I worry that that we are in a position where those in power are making decisions based on their own personal experience and not necessarily considering what the reality for most families are is
0: if you if you could you talked about you know could you call up Chris Reichdell and give some suggestions? But If you could, from what you've seen going on, do you have some suggestions for um, for parents or school districts? Some things that you think, you know, if you haven't thought about doing this, take a look at it. And and I kind of, I'm frustrated by this uh, as well, Shannon, because it seems like uh, I know everyone had hoped that schools could open in this fall, but I, they should have been planning for the very possible likelihood that schools would not open, and I feel like we're still kind of, um, you know, juggling around sort of trying to figure out what to do, and I think that makes things even harder, you know, but, you know, what can you do about that? I mean, that's a frustration. You know, I wish you guys had worked harder at this over the summer to figure some of these things out, but whether you did or didn't, today is August 22nd, and it's time to get going.
2: Yeah, I would say that first and foremost, for any student who has a disability, hold an IEP meeting and have a discussion. You yeah, know, I've seen some really creative thinking out of educators and some real individualized thinking, like that whole idea, the whole concept of the IDEA being individualized. I have mm-hmm. seen for the first time in my career on both sides of the aisle, some real individualized thinking in this circumstance. And I think that's great. And I think that's the first step. Also, you know, you, reach out to your peers and and figure out where are those push points where we can obtain a waiver that makes sense. The transportation so you can bring school to kids, the food waiver so that you can provide food for everyone. I think that, um, you know, small school districts in rural areas should really be working with their ESDs to think about how can you uh, match like with like. For school districts that are able to do so you know why not try and add some synchronous group instruction if you had a third grade reading group at 10 o'clock that went for half an hour try doing that over zoom i see see if that works i think ultimately um, you have to make sure that you're including student voice. The one thing that worried me about all of this is, you know, I knew a lot of the people who are on the OSPI committee who who did a lot of the discussing over the summer, and what I was missing was student voice. And I think that that's critically important because ultimately. Students can speak to what they will or will not do, what they can and cannot access. And so I really encourage there to be authentic student voice in some of these discussions. Um, And I would say that let go of the boxes we've had in the past and start thinking about how can we push out the services or bring certain groups of kids in for services in a way that makes sense and a way that's safe for our staff. Um, I also represent employees, and, you know, I, I've been doing a slew of, of accommodations requests for employees who are needing, you know, specific things because of, of existing disabilities that they'll need to plan for in order to safely serve students, and I would discourage the idea of trying to make everything work, because at some point, we're going to burn our educators out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the models that I've seen, particularly for secondary education, is really asking for teachers to do what in education world we call preps, double preps for each class they teach, one for in-person, one for online. And that is going to burn out our educators really quickly. And I think it's okay to look to the models that other countries have been using instead of using our traditional American seat time model to think about what remote learning looks like. And that remote learning does not have to equal online learning. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so that would be my big suggestion is, you know, I, I think authentic teacher voice is also needed at the, at the table and looking at it n- not just from the human resources perspective of bargaining with the unit uh, with the unions about how it's going to work on a big scale and I, that that's the role of hr departments and that's the role of unions right is to do that bargaining about the workload but i'm talking about separately have that authentic teacher voice as to what is realistic they know their students best. I'm sure a kindergarten teacher knows what's realistic to ask of kindergartners with respect to both in classroom and online behavior better than I do and better mm-hmm. than anybody who is in a, a, you know, an administrator chair. Um, so I really think that it's important to bring in the authentic voices of students, families and school district staff and also really you know, talk to the staff members who've been doing alternative learning experiences in the past, talk to the staff members who may want to do in-person services for students because they feel like that they're in a position to do so. Um, You know, I've I've talked with a lot of speech language pathologists and occupational therapists who feel that they could serve their students either remotely or by going to their students or having their students be brought into them. And while it may normally be a situation where we bargain everything for everybody at the same in the same way maybe this time it's okay to have special education related service providers use models that are available in the clinical world to serve students that normally aren't done in the educational world but are actually done in the educational world in remote school districts or school districts that don't have enough staff so I think it's the number one thing is, Abandon all boxes. Push for change where you can and where it makes sense. Um, Recognize that you're building the plane as you're taking off. And be willing to listen authentically to families and to students and to staff and build build something together. Um, Wise person once told me people support and sustain what they help create. And I think one of the things that has been really a struggle is everybody felt like this, that what happened last spring was put upon them. And it was true. It was very much put upon them. So instead of having a system that's put upon families, students, and educators, have families, students, and educators help you build the system. Because they will help create, they will not only help create it, but they will sustain it if they are truly part of the creation of it.
0: That makes sense. That makes sense. All right. Well, any other comments you'd like to make, Shannon? I mean, I think that kind of gives us a really good summary and some things to think about, but um, you know, since I have you available, any other things you'd like to say or share before we end up end this? Keep watching uh, the
2: sparring of Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Uh, The CARES Act, when it passed Congress, uh, had a chunk of money for schools to allow for things like helping purchase technology. And then the Department of Education put very stringent restrictions on that. And that was really going to limit where the money could go. And it was going to divert a large chunk of the money to private schools. Uh, And Bob Ferguson uh, obtained a nationwide injunction yesterday. Wow. It it seems like... (laughs) I don't think people in his office sleep very much, but <laughs> I don't so either. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I keep an eye on that. To me, that was a huge and tremendous thing that will benefit the entire country because the Department of, Ed- of Education was not going to use the money in the way Congress had intended it, and again, that was creating those barriers that school districts can easily get around. Like somebody suggests, who was it? I think it was Susan Enfield again, the superintendent in Highline who's really been pushing publicly for the USDA to allow for them to do the summer nutrition program. And somebody suggested that, oh, that was an excuse to have kids stay out of school longer. I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) No. Like there's nobody who wants kids back in school more than the educators. No Mm -hmm. superintendent wants this to be their reality. They want their kids back in school. That's a legitimate desire to feed children. Not an excuse to delay students coming back to school. So um, I, I think that, you know, keep an eye on what Bob is Ferguson is doing because I think that that really showed a huge area where Congress had good intent and the money is there and the money is definitely needed where the Department of Education was going to divert it so that that's one to keep an eye on. Um, I would really, if you're, if you're a social media person and on Twitter, I would uh, follow Creston uh, Barr, who's the superintendent in Eatonville, uh Susan Enfield, who's the superintendent in Highline, Denise Juno, who's the superintendent in Seattle, because they post about a lot of these issues. I think Susan in particular has been a tremendous voice as far as really highlighting um, the concerns from the superintendent and school administrator perspective. And I will say, um, has kind of made me aware of some of the issues that I didn't know were coming up, and that's a good place if you want to, you know, just get information about what the practicalities of these laws and regulations and how they play out for for students um, is is one of those things like that. That's how I became aware that um, the issue of not getting bus funding was. I knew how ridership impacted funding, but I hadn't really thought through, oh, that's right, remote learning, they're not going to have ridership, they're not going to have numbers. So I would definitely encourage, you know, follow some of those superintendents who are on the forefront of those issues because they will talk about them. Um, and anytime you see an opportunity for parent and student engagement. Particularly, parent and student engagement for marginalized communities. Uh, push it out. Make sure people you know who will be impacted by it are aware of it, so that they can have their voices heard.
0: Those are all really good tips. And I'm not following all those people, so I'll add a few of them to my uh, Twitter follows as well, just so I can keep up to date.
2: Well, I like following you in this show, and all. I'm I'm a I'm a two five three junkie. Mm-hmm. I not only does it get great coverage of local issues, like with this show. And what we're talking about today, it takes a national issue and puts it in a local lens. And so yeah. I would also say follow 253 Tacoma, and you will hear about this perspective from educators, from parents, and from policy wonks and nerds like me.
0: That's right. Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Shannon. I really appreciate you sharing your Saturday morning with us, and I really appreciate everything that you're doing to keep everyone um keep everything going, keep kids in school, keep parents, uh, you know, tied in and, and helping everyone make the systems work. I appreciate it.
2: Thank you. Have a good afternoon, everyone. Thanks.
1: Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Crossing Division is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows. Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Art Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B Team, Citizen Tacoma, What Say You, and Gimme the Mic. This is Channel 253.